Hey there, this is week five of What Next, an honest conversation with the Book of Acts. Tonight, Ben and I talk about chapters 15 through 20, but we spend most of the night honestly talking about 15 and 16. Maybe there's a little bit of a pattern that's emerged. We're glad you're with us, um, and let's just jump right in. back we're glad that you're here and join us it's a super adam and i were talking about this before you guys uh hopped on but it's been just a rainy and dark day and uh and i think there's just fatigue and so we're glad that you're hopped on um, and grateful that you're here with us um so why don't you adam do you mind uh opening us up with a quick word of prayer that'd be awesome adam you're muted I mean, your prayer will be great in silence. It could be silence. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for pointing that out. Um, all right, let's pray. Dear God, we have journeyed a long time, and we are growing tired. Grant us comfort and energy and ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight. Amen. Amen. So Adam and I talk about these um, conversations uh, in the afternoon, like uh, Tuesday afternoon, just for like about 20 minutes, just to kind of make sure that we're not throwing any major curveballs at one another. Um, we don't go over everything that we say, but today we were talking about just how fascinating it is that, um, or at least for me, when we first started this, I was getting to the point where I was like, once we get to like chapter 15, um, it becomes all, it, to me, in having read Acts before, it becomes redundant. It becomes a little bit about just kind of Paul and whoever it might be that he's with, uh, kind of bouncing around from place to place. And there's not much you can get out of it. And so maybe like 15 through the rest of the book, through 28, is going to be a little bit um, redundant. But I'm kind of floored at how when you, right when we think that there's not going to be much to talk about, um, yeah. something happens uh, or some type of conversation on the national stage is happening. And this book plays a, a critical role, I think, it, at least for me, it's been illuminating in ways that I've never seen before. And in and, and passages of scripture that I've never given much time to, um, for example, uh, the, the prison break uh, of 16. Um, are special and unique moments, but are kind of revealed in, in totally different ways. I don't know, if, Adam, if that's true for you. Yeah, 100%. I think that we're finding that our life together, even, you know, even in this strange reality, illumines uh, new richness in the text every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's like... I don't know. There's just so much again to, to kind of crack into. Last week, I feel like we only got through two chapters. I'm not sure if we're going to get through much more than two or three chapters tonight, honestly, because 15, I know. 17 are just kind of pretty heavy, um, full of stuff that we, uh, we want to talk about that we think is important. Um, you all may not think it's important, but feel free to chime in if you've got questions about other parts. Um, we can certainly, uh, take a look at that. Uh, but the thing that has been focused a lot of our attention for, in reading this this past week is largely 15, 16 and 17. So, um, so where do you want to start, man? Um, let's, I guess, start right. Just, why don't you tell me why I usually kick it off with like, okay. this is how I think of this. Why don't you tell me what yeah. you're thinking? So you, we asked a question last week, um, at the end of the, our time together, that was, does God change God's mind? And we talked a little bit about how God speaks, and we live in this world um, and we live in this position of between like living between what God has said through scripture and what God is saying. And I just can't help but think in chapter 15, we get an example of another person actually in scripture living that out um, mm -hmm. with, uh, with the council at Jerusalem. Um, I mean, the, the story is basically this is that uh, Paul um, comes back in, Paul and Barnabas are coming back to Jerusalem and they're sharing the story of all that has happened. Uh, 
that they've seen witnessed among the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is now with the Gentiles. And there is um, conversation rumblings among the council, particularly among the Pharisees, the higher-ups, um, the ones that are deeply entrenched in um, the Jewish law, who are questioning, well, you know, does the, does the same things that ha apply to us apply to them? And the big thing that they're hung up on is circumcision. Um, and they, they don't ask the question. I mean, they state pretty plainly, the Pharisees, it is, uh, it is necessary for them to be circumcised uh, in order to keep the law of Moses. Um, and then in an interesting way, I mean, Peter stands up and he, he kind of argues his point that he's argued before, uh, which is about the Gentiles have received it as well, and they're going to be saved in the same way that we are. And then James, who's actually, um, we believe this is James speaking, the brother of John, who is the, uh, or excuse me, the brother of Jesus, who is, um, who is the pretty much the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who is probably the most uh, closest to like the heart of, of Jewish teaching use an Old Testament passage of Scripture to kind of relive out what God is saying in the moment as opposed to what God has said. And Jennings, if you read the Jennings book that Adam and I have been using as a resource, Jennings has this beautiful image of, um, of, of a quilt and how, um, and how we quilt together these stories of what God has said and what God is, is saying. And a lot of it comes in fragments, and it's our responsibility as... Um, as followers of Christ, as children of God, as uh, as a listening people, not a speaking people, but a listening people first to to kind of piece these fragments together. And I just I, I found that to be fascinating. Um, first of all, just the structure of the whole thing. There's a there's a quote that I love from Luke Timothy Johnson uh, that comes out of the uh, the Jennings book, and he's talking about. Um, about scripture and how exactly the conversation that we were having last week about God speaking in scripture versus God speaking in the, yeah. in the moment. And Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a professor who was a professor down at Candler uh, where I went to school says the text of scripture does not dictate how God should act. Rather God's actions dictate how we should understand the text of scripture, which I just think is a fascinating way of kind of answering the question that we had last week of, does God change God's mind? The text of scripture does not dictate how God should act. Um, God's actions dictate how we should understand the text of scripture. So it's just something fascinating that I think continues into this week and kind of sets us up um, on a trajectory for, um, for kind of the rest of the section and how Paul and Barnabas go about doing their work um, and, and, and living in the spirit and living in the moment. Um, and then what will become later uh, Paul and someone else. So, that's interesting for me. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that first chapter 15? Uh, yeah, I echo a lot of the same interests that you had. I, we're, I feel like we get these kinds of reverberations in the texts, right? Uh, even in this book. And each time it feels like the register is just a little different, just yeah. a little different and adds this kind of richness to the conversation that's happening. Um, and here I think we see really a real contestation about what what was decided in Acts 11, right? Mm -hmm. In Acts 11, they decided, okay, the Gentiles can receive the faith, they can receive salvation, yeah. which was groundbreaking. Yeah. And here they're asking, well, what does that mean? Like, how does, what could that possibly mean? Right. Um, and I think it's important for us as Gentiles to remember that, right. that, not only was it a debate, a lively debate, about if we could even receive salvation, uh, the terms of our inclusion was contest were contested. Yeah. You know? and, and you have to think that like Gentiles are, they're not in the room, but they're present because they're like there. And there's a little bit of questions about like our exclusion of people later on. And I think that we'll probably. Yeah. Like, yeah, for me, that's, that's exactly what it makes me think of is. Yeah. Um, we are the outsiders who were barely let in the door. Yeah. Like how dare we think we can lock the door? Mm, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, there's another quote that I, that I really liked from Jennings who kind of talks about this and he, he, he calls out some pastors and I mean, and, and as a pastor, you can read Jennings um, interpretation of this and talks about 
that divide between Jews and Gentiles and like the segregation that took place and, and, uh, and the segregation that still takes place in our churches really uh, about who's in and who's out, whether that be like literally who's allowed in and who's out or just in cultural norms, kind of more of the um, de facto who's in and who's out. Uh, but he, he calls out the pastors by saying essentially that like, Pastors have to remember, like the big thing that they forget most often is that, um, is this basic truth of Gentiles coming essentially into the church was that uh, they serve the God of another people. Like we are, a pe- we are a people who followed and believed in and took on the God of another people, of a Jewish people. Yes. Yes. It's always something that we don't, that we fr- frequently forget. We kind of take ownership over. Christ and take ownership over, um, over who God is in kind of a way that's interesting, just fascinating. Um, yeah. And I, I also want to point out here that the good news for me of chapter 15 is not the decision and, and consensus that's built mm-hmm. in the conversation with James, right. right? That they can join under these conditions, right. which like, okay. The good news is that Paul and Silas, and Barnabas, or who I can't remember right now, who's but yeah. return yeah. to be and live with life, live life with the Gentiles. Yeah, it's yeah. the joining that happens after the consensus. It's not the consensus itself. You know what I mean? It's not the terms of inclusion. It's the act of inclusion. Absolutely, it's like a practice. I mean, the reason, and I think that that's actually why. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So, like the the. Circumcision is no longer, it does, it's not necessary, right? Um, um, yet, uh, in a second, we, we see that, what is it, Silas that immediately gets circumcised, or no, Timothy. I mean, Timothy, yeah, no, Timothy. Just a second, we get there. But, um, but the interesting thing about this is that, like, circumcision is no longer required, uh, necessarily, but there are some that they still want to create, and I was wondering, like, why are they stuck on these? And it's about creating that level of the ability to sit down at the table together, like, like having the laws that, um, keeping the laws intact or keeping the standards intact that allow Jews and Gentiles to sit together. That's why there's a focus on, on clean food. I mean, like food that is, that allows them to have table fellowship with one another, which I think is just interesting. Um, Yeah, that's right. Interesting to point out, but it's about, and it makes me think about for us right now, like what are the things that are, are essential to our faith that allow us to commune with one another that we kind of need to, in order to facilitate that conversation, like, like mutuality, like, like respect and dignity, holding up the respect and dignity of others. That's something that like, we're not going to, that's still a, a, a requirement, like, you know, in the church, like we're going to make you do that. We're going to make you abide by these rules and practices so that we can all commune together and live together. Um, I know people have argued the fact of like, well, now you're discriminating against people who are, believe differently in you. It's like, no, we're, 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 we're keeping a level of mutuality and, and fellowship among us. And that's why those laws are in place. But then what are the laws that we kind of not need to get rid of, but the laws that are, um, that have, that God may be speaking different life into, or mm-hmm. may not be speaking into anymore that allow us to, to be in communion with one another. Right. Yeah. Whose flesh is the spirit fallen on that we have ignored? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I just want to point out is uh, Barnabas makes his departure yeah. here, right? And I don't really want to go into Barnabas all that much, but for people who are reading along, if you go back and reread, Barnabas can be a, a character that you can kind of skip over, but he's played a crucial role throughout this text. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he's somebody that you should pay attention, you know, just kind of underline and like, oh, Barnabas was here. Barnabas was here. Barnabas did this. Um, as you read through, and it's illuminating. Barnabas and, continues to be the one who um, takes risky gestures gestures towards including um, people in the life of faith. Mm-hmm. And does he ever even speak? I'm not even sure if he ever even has has like a single line nope. of text. But yeah. Nope. It's all through his gesture of of including who he's going to bring with him. Yeah, Paul's more of the one that like talks, and Barnabas just like does right instead of preaching. Yeah, but I mean, there's good indication to believe that Barnabas taught Paul, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So, 
um, yeah, anyway, just want to note that. Love my boy Barnabas. Cool. <laughs> I want him to, uh, you know, show respect where respect is due. So. <laughs> okay. Cool. So look at get, Yeah, go ahead. Should we get into chapter 16? Yeah, let's start with 16. So let's just... Oh, real quick, real quick, Ben. If, if we're thinking about this, we thought about it 15 through 20 for a reason, right? Like, yeah. as a narrative arc. Yeah, yeah. What, can you give us the, the big view of what's happened? Sure. So, I mean, if you follow, like, the trajectory of the story, uh, like, overall, the big arc. So, obviously, chapter one is this time of kind of waiting and God's about to do a new thing and this, like, transitional moment. Chapter two is the coming of the Spirit. Um, upon these people and the reshaping of the, of the, of the believers kind of in that moment. And they're going to be continued to be reshaped throughout, obviously, but like in that moment, there's the initial restructuring. And then I think in that third week, we started talking about how, um, how uh, the internal community was being shaped and transformed. So like the Jew, they immediately go to their, their Jewish neighbors. I mean, their Jewish brothers and sisters. Peter preaches a sermon to the Jewish people. Um, yep. and they begin to restructure kind of the internal community. Last week, we talked about how they're restructuring, the, or they go to the external community and the Gentiles. Um, and now that like our conversation has shifted a little bit towards the Gentiles, I think what we find in 15 through 20 is how the spirit is reshaping, is, is kind of confronting Gentile way of life, mm-hmm. how it restructures and, um, and, and, and crumbles mm-hmm. some aspects of Gentile living. Like, you know, the Gentiles have the spirit. Doesn't mean that the spirit doesn't necessarily wreak havoc on the Gentiles in the same way that it wreaked havoc on the Jews, right? Um, Amen. There's still going to be a, 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 a turning upside down of the world. And they, that's even, I think, the line that we use for this night is that these people come and they turn, they're turning upside down the world around us. And I think we see that tonight in political systems, in institutions and structures. I think we see it in, um, there's a hint of it in kind of the economy and the way that uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, about how um, the spirit kind of challenges it and pushes back pretty hard on some of the ways of living in the world that the Gentiles are accustomed to. So I think that's where we're going um, for, for this 15 through 20 piece. So great. Yeah, cool. So let's talk uh, 16. First thing, just fascinating thing to think about is Timothy. Um, so Timothy is this character that we, um, that we have all heard about because there's, he's, he's, he's often considered like the protege of, of Paul. Uh, he's got some letters that are, you know, make an appearance in scripture um, towards the end. And we find that Timothy actually plays a pretty critical role that I don't think I've given, that a lot of people don't give much attention to in the sense that he is, um, comes from a mixed family. Um, his mother is Jewish. His father is uh, Greek. And so there is very clear evidence that this is a, this is a, he is a, um, kind of a mixed race, if you will. I mean, mixed identity. Um, He does not belong necessarily in one world. And so he steps into the very interesting social location um, as one who begins to follow Christ and takes on this message. One that I think all of us are called to, to be perfectly honest with you, Um, um, even if we're not literally uh, of, of mixed race. And so uh, Timothy's fascinating and he, he gets circumcised. Um, Love to hear your thoughts on why why you think that's important, Adam. Uh, like, why why is it significant for Timothy to get circumcised in light of the fact they just said circumcision is not required? Right. Um, I think I think as a narrative structure, like if we're remembering Luke is not just recounting events but telling a story, right? Um, telling a theological arc, putting Timothy's decision to get circumcised yeah. right after the consensus that circumcision isn't necessary for inclusion yep. is really significant that we should pay attention to, right? It's supposed to make us kind of trip up, I think. But I think the move here that's important is one, recognizing that Timothy always in his body before or after circumcision represents an inside-outside situation, right? Mm-hmm. Just like you said. Yep. That he's never fully Greek. He's never fully Jewish. 
he's always a body in suspicion a body at the boundary right um however his decision to get circumcised one i mean we should acknowledge that like there may be some fear that's driving it right there's already been hostile tensions between the christ movement the jesus movement and um, orthodox jews who are seeking to protect their identity and way of life um, but as, as Jennings points out, Timothy has always had to navigate that, right? That his body doesn't fully belong and represents a threat to kind of um, Orthodox Judaism mm-hmm. in, in the way that it's typically practiced in these areas. I think that it's a testament to Timothy's love for his people, right? Mm-hmm. He is stepping deeper into the life of and with his people Mm -hmm. and it's a decision timothy makes out of love for those people Hmm. it's not i don't think we can um ascribe any other kind of meaning grand theological meaning to it um but the the move is that he's a greek man and a jewish man yeah who loved the jewish people so much that he undergoes circumcision yeah the critical it's just fascinating to think about i mean the the again, the juxtaposition of that story and this, but I think that you make a good point. I mean, and maybe there's not much, much more to it than that. It's just a love of the people. I think it may also, it may hint a little bit at like um, the intent possibly of Luke uh, to show that this is an extension of the Holy Spirit um, pushing beyond the Jewish people, not necessarily replacing the Jewish people. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, to pushing beyond. So it's, it's, and, and Timothy is that link to show that this is, and I think this is kind of pointing to Kelly's question a second ago about supersessionism and the idea of like, it's not pushing um, beyond, it's, it's not replacing, it's pushing beyond. It's, go, it's going and extending to more people. And Timothy's kind of showing, yeah, it's, this isn't, it's still an option. It's still a, a cultural identity piece. It's still a, a way of being in the world. Can we talk about supersessionism just really quick? I yeah. feel like this section is the section where like the tendency toward to read toward supersessionism yeah. is easy. Yeah. So for, for people who may not know, supersessionism is a theological term that we use to describe the notion that the church has replaced Israel mm-hmm. as God's elect in the world mm-hmm. or God's chosen people in the world. And that because of the Jesus moment or Jesus movement or the events in Acts, yeah. um, Israel are no longer God's beloved or God's chosen, but churches. We, um, supersessionism is something that, particularly for the last 80 years, has been an increasing worry among the church. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think, relatively accepted consensus that supersessionism is a bad move, bad theological move. Um, so, uh, it's something that we want to be attentive to. We don't consider it orthodox anymore to consider that, like, uh, the church now has inherited, um, what Israel has disinherited, mm-hmm. you know, um, Israel's, uh, primacy as God's chosen and God's beloved still is the thing we are being brought into the life of Israel. And that's Israel is expanding to include us. It's not moving to the Gentiles now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of people, you know, some of the claims that um, that people use on a very superficial level, on a shallow level, is that, you know, like, why would I ever preach from the Old Testament? Like, the Old Testament isn't mm-hmm. as relevant now. It's kind of our backstory to the main thing of Jesus. Right. There's a little bit of like, no, I think, um, I mean, obviously you recognize that Jesus, Lord and Savior, totally get that. Um, but this is a story of God and God's people, and Jesus is a part of that story, certainly. But um, but there's more to that story that extends kind of before and after, as we see through the work of the Spirit, as we see before um, before Jesus is physically present on the scene. Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word was God. But um, in the physical manifestation of Jesus, it's uh, Jesus is one part of a long, longer story, right? Um, so, yep. 
interesting conversation to have. I mean, we could we could honestly do a whole night on supersessionism, and I, f- I fear going down that path. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of like name that that like, um, if you find yourself reading like, oh, the Jews are done, um, yeah. maybe pause for a second and think, oh, there must be another way to read this. Or something. Yeah, yeah, good point. Cool. So let's keep talking with sixteen. Uh, 16 yeah, kind of the continuation, pushing beyond. He's the he's a. Uh, He's a, a physical body, like literally represented in his body as a biracial person, a person that lives on the borders and kind of pushing beyond. Um, let's kind of move, be, like, let's move beyond Timothy. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep him in our story, but let's talk about the women, um, the two women. I'm going to let you two. Yeah, Lydia and the enslaved girl. Yeah. So with Lydia, we see, um, we see a kind of recapitulation of what we saw with Cornelius, right? A powerful person who um, is brought into the life of faith. And with Lydia, we see a reorienting of the domestic and economic life in, in her life, in her family's life, right? That's a result of the Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. I also, like, just to even, before even, like, when we talk about Lydia, I love just the idea of, like, Luke's work with women in general, right? So Luke, as an author, you know, if Luke wrote Acts, um, which a lot of people agree did, the author, the author's the same between Luke Acts, it's one, part one, part two. Um, Lydia is her own woman, right? And that's a story that doesn't necessarily happen in the other Gospels in a way that it does in Luke, which she just embodies Luke's understanding of how radical like like her there's the fact that she is named as a woman an independent woman and the way that we just know that she kind of makes money is she refers to it as her home it's my home it's not her husband's home it's my home i'm my own woman she's a obviously um in business as well i mean there's like several indicators there that show that she's this uh this established person in the community and she's at her place of worship but that just doesn't necessarily happen. So I do think that she embodies something about Luke's writing and about the narrative of change that's taking place in a way that is quick to overlook, but I think it's very intentional um, as well. So. Lydia also, just as part of a quick reception history thing, uh, Lydia has often been seen as kind of the mother of um, this long tradition of women with resources mm-hmm. who have funded the work of the church or the, or the work of civil rights movements. Um, in the fight for justice. And so there are like a long line of women who follow after Lydia. Yeah. So. Cool. So we got Lydia on one hand, who is, um, who's, who's kind of this well-to-do person who does just kind of wonderful things with her money, which is great. I mean, she, uh, she has this money. She opens herself up. She opens up her home, which we're going to see in a little bit um, in order Mm -hmm. to, uh, to use that money generously, which kind of hark, uh, kind of harkens back to the Acts two, you know, the way of the church, the sharing all yeah. in common. She kind of gets it, um, and that's kind of what she does: is, is she begins to work towards that community. On the other hand, we've got the slave girl, and I don't necessarily mean other hand to say a complete opposite depiction of that, but the uh with the with the slave girl that comes around just after this so paul and silas um run into this woman this young woman uh she's a girl who is essentially being used by guys to tell fortunes and she's a slave and she is a way of making money for these guys right and she begins to actually proclaim kind of that, that they're right to like, listen, like these guys are telling the truth about salvation, about who the Messiah is and they're preaching the good news. But then she's like, Paul tells her to stop. Tell me a little bit about why Paul tells her to stop. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said something earlier today um, with Jennings about, and, and kind of bringing in the Jennings piece of like, sure. Is, is she, I mean, she, she seems to be going along with what, um, what they want her to say. I mean, like they would, I, I right. Would... Yeah. So first, one thing I want to point out is the text makes it, I think makes it pretty clear that she's possessed, right? I mean, she's uh, a spirit is, is inhabiting her. So she's being, her body is in use from the owners who own her yep. to profit and the spirit who's occupying her, right? Yep. Um, 
And yeah, I, I, yeah, earlier today I said one of the things that I thought was kind of funny was that Paul turns around and tells the spirit to shut up. Yeah. Out of annoyance. It's not out of like righteous indignation or anything. He just gets annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the things, one of the things that it made me think about and, um, and Jennings touches on this too, is uh, that theological speech, especially when it's captured by um, evil economic systems yeah. and conditions, um, isn't okay. It doesn't, you know, like petty, cheap nods to the theological order of things or something. Mm, right. Um, doesn't protect it from the judgment of God. Yeah. You yeah. know? I mean, the, the church industry is a lucrative business in certain parts of the world. I mean, certain parts of the United States, right? Uh, um, I mean, we often think of churches as like, uh, there's a lot of little churches, I mean, throughout the world that are kind of deprived of money. But then you look at some of these big mega churches and they seem to be the biggest business in town. Um, and there's something sure. using language uh, kind of taking that language um, of proclaiming good news in a way that it's just interesting to think about, kind of play around with and, and how the spirit does that in a way and Paul demands that it gets out and it disrupts for them that economic system that they had, like this, this way of making money. Yeah. And I, I want to take it further than even churches. Like for me, it makes me think about businesses that profit off of death mm. that use the word of God to prop up their business. Mm. Um, I think of one, I'll just be really explicit. Yeah. Um, this isn't being recorded or anything. <laughs> yeah. I'll risk, I'll risk my words. Um, this made me think of a gun manufacturer that prints Bible verses on the barrels of their guns. Mm. Hmm. Um, Printing a Bible verse on an instrument of violence and death doesn't make it an instrument of life. Mm. Yeah. And we should be annoyed. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what it made me think of. Interesting. I didn't realize that, that was the, the, I'd never heard of that, that gun manufacturer. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, I guess, in a way, but like, I've just never heard of that before. Yeah. And I mean, not just that gunman, you know, we see, we often see large businesses that profit off of the destruction of our economy, the destruction of local economies, the destruction of, um, of life together, of flourishing life for vulnerable people who give a nod mm -hmm. to the religious platitudes of the church, right. To that give a nod to, um, yep. that believe that their economic flourishing, that their economic accumulation and their nod to the theological language that belongs to the church, protect it from critique, yeah. protect it from divine judgment. Right. And imbue the economic accumulation or theft um, with the facade of divine blessing. Mm. And there should be little else that annoys us as the church more than that. Yeah. Taking, taking, I don't want to say our language, but taking the language of God and using it for something dramatically different than what we preach um, or what we talk right. about. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's not, if it doesn't make sense out of Luke 4, yeah. you know, proclaiming good news to the poor, setting captives free, yeah. the work of the spirit that we see through Acts, yeah. then like, don't use those words, you yeah. know? And that's, so, and that's why I think, so, but here's the thing is, and this is where it's really important, I think, um, to, to put Lydia and the slave girl beside each other. And this yeah. is because it's, it's not speaking, I don't think, to necessarily wealth as being inherently bad, right? Um, wealth and the sharing of resources uh, it can be done for incredible good, as Lydia shows. And then the other end of the spectrum is um, a... Uh, the facade, the religious facade. Um, and to be fair, sometimes it's not a facade. Sometimes it might be like a genuine belief that you are doing things, you know, you are like yeah. legitimate. I mean, it's not just a facade. It's not like tricksters and swindlers. This might, this could have been, but it might not always be that. 
of people who think that they are genuinely following and obeying the word of God in their business and think that the economy have bought in so much to their economic beliefs that they, they, they can't pull them apart and they can't distinguish the two. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that Lydia is the, the model and the slave girl might be the counter argument, like the counter uh, yeah, I, and I also want to—I I, want to make it clear. Um, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to suggest here, is not that the enslaved girl is not at fault. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. Her owners are at fault. Right. right totally. The the spirit who's possessing her is a you know. So I just want to. Right. Yeah. Power behind. Um, right. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So then, how do the owners react? Yeah. So the owners react and flip out. Right. So they're angry about this. Um, because they completely, Paul has completely shattered their way of making money. Um, and it is kind of like, Oof. right. Um, yeah, uh, they seize Paul and they seize Silas and they take him and essentially they take him to the authorities in the marketplace, right? So it's interesting that the authorities are in the marketplace. I don't want to like miss that. We're not going to the courtroom. These are the judges of the marketplace. Um, um, and when they brought them there, they pretty much say, these guys are disrupting our way of life. Um, they're advocating for things that are like against the Roman law and against all of our observations that we believe as a people. Um, and so they get the crowd behind them and they start attacking them, right? And then magistrates and eventually throw them into jail. So um, we have once again something that we've heard echoes of before, which is jail being used um, to enforce you know, or to, to reprimand for, for breaking a, against a kind of a cultural norm um, as a result of that. But for us as Christians, in hindsight, we look at and we think, well, that's not very fair. Um, they clearly didn't, weren't doing anything wrong. They were preaching the word of God. And we see once again, I think what you've said before, Adam, which is that um, early Christians are criminal. I mean, they are, uh, they are criminal under Roman law. And, and that's just a pretty important thing to to acknowledge um in a lot of ways the spirit disrupts structures and disrupts life itself in a way that it pushes people beyond the rule of law and into to new ways of living so um so they throw them into prison yeah 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 i think one important thing to point out here is that we see a terrible we're stepping into the gentile world right mm -hmm. And we already see a terrible um, pillar that still throws its shadow today. Mm. And that's um, who, who get to call upon the authorities to uh, imprison and control mm. people who are a threat to their way of life, right? Mm -hmm. That... Um, We've seen here, we've seen before we stepped into the Gentile world, the kind of high priests are the ones who are often calling, right? And we, we can understand that movement, that they need to protect their way of life they, because there are people at risk. Right. Um, you know, and now we're stepping into a new realm, a kind of new religious order, where the high priests here who get to call upon the authorities for protection are owners. Mm-hmm. And they function as the kind of high priests of the marketplace. And this isn't the first time we'll see that in the Gentile. I mean, this isn't the last time we'll see that in the Gentile world. No. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. In the Gentile world, there's the, the, the marketplace plays a pretty, pretty significant role in there. It's just interesting to me, Adam, to, th to think about, first of all, to think about Paul as being now on the receiving end. Mm instead of the distributing end of prison as a tool, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's no doubt that like in the world of kind of religious law and the high priests of um, Jewish law, that like th that prison can be used as a tool to keep law and order. It's a, it's a threat, right? It is. Right. Uh, that's what it is. It's, um, it's a piece that you use to kind of keep your faith propped up. Uh, and I hate to say that uh, in a lot of ways, but that's what a lot of the Pharisees use, and they kind of appeal to that in general. And cult, it wasn't just the um, Pharisees, but it was kind of the way of right. life. You see that in the Gentile world as well. And then you see Paul now being on the receiving end of it, and um, and Paul's like a hero for having gone to prison. You also uh, see it um, 
and I mean, Paul's letters are, you know, a lot of them are written from prison. So there is something about we the heroic about Paul kind of living his life um, as, a, as a prisoner. Um, he uses that language a lot. I mean, then you see Jesus looking at, um, uh, obviously Jesus was in prison for a temporary period of time, right? Yeah. Uh, right. And then he's crucified uh, by the state. Um, right. And, and so you see parallels between Paul and Jesus, obviously. That's right. And then the prison system being used against both of them or this punishment being used against both of them. And as Christians, we look at that and we think, well, like the law was on the wrong side of things. Like our morality is right. Our morality is, um, is correct. Um, and, and then I can't help but think in light of everything that's been going on the past few weeks, Mm -hmm. um, me being in, in reading this at the same time, me having a lot of hesitation before I'm quick to say that like the legal system is the, is gets it right. You know, um, that the, that the, right. like that the judicial system is the way about going uh, of handling, um, handling a circumstance like this. I mean, right. Do Paul and Silas are uh, at this point need to be thrown in prison for, for doing that? Uh, you know, for, of course not. Right. <laughs> disrupting some swindlers um income right i mean right I, I don't know it's just interesting to think about this all of this kind of tied in together morality and the prison system um and jesus and paul i mean it's just fascinating i don't know yeah i think yeah to kind of echo that i think what what we see here is a crack opening up that jesus began mm-hmm. Jesus stepping in and being fully divine and fully human um, and without blame and being convicted and executed a criminal Mm. opens a crack between that kind of easy association between criminal and bad, Mm -hmm. right? That bad people end up in the criminal category Mm -hmm. or criminals must be bad. We see that crack starting to open up. And yeah. say there are more complicated calculations going on that determine who gets labeled criminal. And we know that there are a ton of bad people who never end up labeled as criminal, right? And what we see is that gap start to widen and widen and widen throughout the book of Acts. Yeah. And here we get one of the most dramatic um, kind of openings of that crack from the spirit. Because mm-hmm. there's an earthquake, right? Yeah. It makes me all right. <laughs> it makes me think about when I think about um, these guys being a prisoner. I mean, being kind of what we view as being on the wrong end of the law, right? Like they they were there's an injustice against them for being put in prison, sure. Um, sure. you know. And uh, it makes me appreciate like the Matthew passage that is. Um, you know, I was poor and you, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. It always has just kind of stood out to me. Like, like the, the, if you look at that list of descriptors, I don't even have it in front of me. Let me pull it up. Um, Matthew, Matthew 25, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It is 25. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, I'm in 26. Um, where, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me some some clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. It's it's just fascinating. Um, Oh, hang on. Sorry. I thought my Zoom calls about then. Um, It's just fascinating to me that in all those things, it's like it's a necessity that the the people meet or like an injustice that they don't have it. And then you put the prison piece in there with it. And it kind of illuminates that perhaps there's, um, I don't know. There's something more complicated going on. Absolutely. So, yeah. and maybe, I mean, we can say here, maybe we can say here, let's, let's just talk about this actually. So we can, we can talk about the prison or the prisoner in the abstract. And I think the church often does that in prison ministry and things like that. Right. Like yeah. we often talk about the prisoner as a site for reform like we'll go into the prison and help these bad people find the love of Jesus or something, you know? Um, And it's important to point out that the kind of architecture of the prison that we have today 
is birthed out of a Christian movement for reform. So it's birthed out of a belief that individuals can change if they're given um, strict and kind of deprived circumstances Mm -hmm. so that they can have to reflect on their behavior or whatever, and then they can leave reformed. So I just want to point that out, first off. Second off, um, church services in prisons are real. Yeah. They're not deficient. Yeah. Uh, even though our imaginations, often if we haven't attended one, is that they may be deficient or maybe less um, informed or educated or articulate or, or powerful. Yeah. And what we see here is Paul having church in prison. Yeah. And his... Um, worship in the prison connects him to the congregation outside the prison. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So when we sing hymns, when we pray our prayers, when we sing our songs on a Sunday morning, those same songs are being sung in prisons. Those same prayers are being prayed in prisons. Right. Mm -hmm. And it constitutes a congregation on the inside and on the outside of the prison walls. It transcends those lines, right? That's right. Yeah, the Spirit is doing a work, I think. Yeah. Our voice gets added to their chorus, you yeah. know? Totally. And as that, as that reality, in order for the church to bear witness to that reality, yeah. their suffering and injustice, their deprivation and pain is our deprivation and pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not an option, you know? Right. It's not it's like not an option if we care or not. It's not a niche interest mm-hmm. for the church. Mm-hmm. It is essential to our witness as the church. Absolutely. That's awesome. So, yeah, sorry to No, I I mean there's a lot of great um awesome ministries. I mean that first care does on in the prison system. I mean in, in Yeah. The, I mean like that's powerful. And I've I've been with Laurie before to um the women's prison in Raleigh and um, and the, the the stories and the relationships with God in the, there are um, are just pretty pretty powerful to behold right um, and God's working in in kind of crazy ways in there that I don't think that we like we, we wouldn't necessarily know and we can never experience on the outside right um, I think uh, in that that fashion so yeah it's pretty Pretty amazing to see and to experience. So an earthquake happens, right, in the story. Uh, the spirit shows up yep. and causes an earthquake. Yep, right. So, right, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the spirit shows up, causes an earthquake. Um, and this is my, actually, my, the interesting part, the jailer piece. Um, mm-hmm. Right, so the jailer piece comes about, and the jailer is uh, fearful Right, because all of his people are, are are gone at this point. All the jailer woke up. Everything's everybody's out there, and he's about to just kind of end his life because he knows that it is over for him no matter what. Um, and Paul and Silas do this just powerful thing of bringing him into um, um, into the faith as well. I mean, like this is not like you know we can we can you can be a part of the system. This is not a thing about. It's not about people versus people. It's about systems, I think, that are in place. Yeah. The kind of a deconstruction of that by bringing in. My favorite part of the whole section that we read, though, this week, um, of everything that I read, my favorite part is when, essentially, uh, they're trying to let Paul and Silas go and trying Mm -hmm. to let them kind of go quietly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Paul puts his foot down and is like, absolutely not. We're not, you're not going to let us out of jail quietly because of this injustice that you did. We're going to make a scene of it. Like you are not going to just be able to kind of do this, um, this injustice against us and claim it to be just a, like a mistake or like a one-off thing. Sorry, we did this. Um, Come on. We're going to have yeah. to draw attention to the injustice that is this whole system um i think um and so they make him they make him release him in public um, and wait till the the time after so yes uh, my favorite part um i think of the whole whole section but so good much more done so good i kind of run circles around it so what do you think what do you think that means about the church why do you think we should care that they do that is this a heroic act on the behalf of paul and silas 
or is an, an act of retribution so that they get their honor back? Like what's happening here? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think it's a name. I mean, I think there can be, okay, well, here we go. Here we go. Come on, man. Do uh, it. I think that you cannot have, um, any form of, uh, reconciliation any form of um, restoration um, without publicly naming these types of things um, and without having them in in public like that's just the only way it can work because it restores um, the dignity of the people who have experienced the injustice in a way um, right it it allows for um, them to have their dignity kind of given back to them by the community or whoever it may be that has taken it from them uh, but I also think it's important for the people, for for the community as a whole, um, to see that things are being made well and things are being made right. Uh, sure. So I'm not sure if there's, um, I'm not, I mean, you know, so that's why when we talk about race relations, I mean, when we talk, and I, to use the expression race relations, it's just kind of a very dated term. But when we talk about um, racial justice, uh, mm -hmm. there is a very particular naming that has to be done. And I think what the United States did in the wake of civil rights movement is exactly what these guys try to do, which is uh, out the back door, we passed the Civil Rights Act, we're not going to make a big stink of this. But what has other countries have done, and I'm not going to say that like South Africa is like the best example of this, or Germany is the best example of it, but they definitely made a much more public display of we have done wrong, we have... Um, as a as a community as a society and and we need to make up for this publicly and i think repentance and repair yeah yeah and i think that that's the that's the truth that we kind of see in this piece is the the, the need for a public um reconciliation that happens right um so a public process and a public reconciliation. so yeah great Cool. That's all I got to say about that. Um, I mean, I've got more to say about it, but I'll say. I know. I, th I feel like you and I could have done three nights on. Yeah, on I did. Yeah, I wish actually we had talked a little bit. I, I wasn't expecting us to go down that road. Um, <laughs> but I did love that part. So cool. We only have um, time left, but I want to hear what else you think is. Um, the, you, you brought in some other texts of scripture earlier, um, some other passages of scripture. That I think. Yeah. One thing I just wanted to, while we were in chapter 16, and remembering this, I, I just, we've talked about reading scripture in these kinds of circles, right? We talk often about reading the verse, reading the chapter, reading the set of chapters, reading the book, reading scripture, um, and how those, all of those things speak to each other in different levels. Yeah. This is, Acts chapter 16 is, I think, an important thing to read, to bear in mind when you're reading Romans chapter 13. Mm-hmm which is often used as a, as a quick excuse or a, a theological underwriting for the use of divine, or, or the divine underwriting for the use of state violence. Um, and I'm not trying to suggest how we should read it. What I'm trying to suggest is when you're reading it, remember that the man who wrote it is intimately aware of how unjust the state can be in its exercise of, of, of control for the sake of peace. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all I wanted to say. And yeah. be suspicious about when it gets used to just easily underwrite violence. Yeah. As right. it has in our recent history. When, we, when it's claiming like that we should bend to the bend to the like the powers that are elected are kind of divine uh kind of god god's hands in that and the divine nature of it and that we should bend towards it i mean there's you read this passage of scripture and clearly paul is very in stern disagreement with the state and i don't think that he would say that those magistrates were necessarily divine um that's right um you know uh not to say that god can't work there but just to say that they are divine appointees um it's kind of an interesting thing to think yeah. about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that over and over and over again, we see that the spirit is unwilling to yield to the power of the president. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or unwilling to even grant it the power to control bodies. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to point that out. Um, and one more, I just had one more thing. 
to say. Wait on me. Uh, chapter 19. Let's jump to chapter 19. Cool. Uh, we didn't even talk about Paul and Athens, which people are probably so curious. Yeah. I didn't have uh, much about Paul and Athens. Yeah. That's totally fine. In chapter 19, I just wanted to point out really quick um, that we see... Um, uh, what's his name? The riot in Ephesus here. I'm looking at chapter 21. Um, is it Demetrius in Ephesus? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, Demetrius, that's his name. I just yeah. want to grant Demetrius a little bit of credit here. Because no. no. he sees something that I think the church has often not wanted to see. Which is? And that's the good news of Jesus Christ is a threat to the social order. Mm. Mm-hmm. What does he say? He says something... Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're arguing essentially because they're, he's coming in and destroying the shrines. Their livelihoods. Their yeah. livelihoods, their shrines. There's silversmith shrine builders, and Demetrius sees that, like, this is Jesus. This message is messing up how we do business. Or has the potential to. You yeah. Know? I think he just sees, like, I think Demetrius listens more closely than a lot of people have. Hmm. Interesting. And I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. So think about that, you know, like Demetrius isn't wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong. This whole um, section to me has just been about, um, about disruption and agitation in a way that's not, it's not done by Paul and Silas. I mean, it's not like it's the spirit disrupting things, right? That's it's right. Not, and that's the important thing to remember is this is not like um, guys who just come out there and are just trying to like be, provocateurs of everything right. if you think of that at all it's because they are working out of conviction and in a place of like deep like this is what god is telling us to do um and i think we can all often see and I, I think i mentioned this quote that i had a professor that described acts as like a just a very um self-aggrandizing book about a bunch of guys who went and did great things yeah and you read that it's like you think that it's just them doing it by their own power and their own will and like kind of doing what right. they best for the church and i don't think that they had that in mind as much as it was like spirit take us wherever it is that the gospel needs to be spoken and we'll speak it and and if we and if we have to speak it by preaching we will and if not just by being present we will um, and that's really important for us to hear and it's just fascinating to think about like what their mental state might have been uh, in all of this and just being like not yeah. here we go um but i think it's yeah exactly uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that I um, relish in the disruption. No, it, I relish in the impatience and unacceptance of anything that would keep us from life together, in the mm -hmm. spirit of God. Mm -hmm. Right. When That's we, what I find so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, they're they moving. They're moving quickly a lot. Um, yeah. So I'm going to close this. We're going to wrap up. Um, don't see any additional questions on here. So I'm going to wrap us up with something that's a, a kind of relevant. It's a benediction that a professor of mine used a couple of years ago, uh, not a couple of years ago. He used um, at the 1996 General Conference, Bishop Woody White. He teaches at Candler, and I had him for a class on um, United Methodist Church and Race. And this is the benediction. Um, and it just reminds me so much of this section of scripture that I wanted to incorporate. So receive this benediction. And now may the Lord torment you. May the Lord keep before you the faces of the hungry, the lonely, the rejected, and the despised. May the Lord afflict you with pain for the hurt, the wounded, the oppressed, the abused, the victims of violence. May God grace you with agony, a burning thirst for justice and righteousness. May the Lord give you courage and strength and compassion to make ours a better world, to make your community a better community, to make your church a better church. And may you do your best to make it so. And after you have done your best, may the Lord grant you peace. So y'all have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Wrap up the book next week. I think it's 21 through the rest of the, the book. And then we come back to the first two chapters of the last night. So we'll see you soon. Take care, y'all. Thanks for joining us. We'd love for you to be a part of this conversation as we continue forward. You can join us live on Tuesday nights, or you can just send us an email, 
or a series of emails over the week if you have any thoughts or questions about what we'll be reading that week or what we read the week before. We're grateful to have wide conversation partners in this. Um, In the meantime, we'll see you next week.